This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by TouringPlans.com. Head over to TouringPlans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the Crowd Calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the Touring Plans to save time and money waiting in line. TouringPlans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project podcast. You know what we do. You know why we do it. But let me tell you anyway. Uh, we are here to talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company because we just love movies. We love Disney. We love movies. And this is how we choose to express it. Uh, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy talking about it. I'm Ryan Kilpatrick, host of the show, along with my buddies. We run DisneyFilmProject.com, where you can go and read about the films of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, the shorts, the true life adventures, the animated movies, the live action films, the park movies, whatever you want to find, uh, you'll find it over there at DisneyFilmProject.com. So go and check that out. As usual, we have accustomed, or assembled rather, much like the Avengers, the <laughs> finest group of film buffs we could find and first of all we have mr todd perlmutter who is chief technical officer at disneydrivenlife.com he's a blogger at touringplans.com he's chief technical wonk at on the go and mco.com i'm just creating a title for you now uh and he is also a ardent time traveler who you could probably find during the era of this movie yes didn't you see me in the background I did. It was weird how they converted you into an animated person. I don't know yes. if they, everyone was animated in the 1600s. I don't know, but it could be. <laughs> Dig, digging for gold sucked. Just saying. <laughs> I can imagine. It's like that's that's hard labor. I mean, I know you're a runner and all, but that's you know that's using the muscles, hard labor type stuff. That it, well, very fun. It, it helps with the runner posture, lower back. You know that kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah. No, yeah. I hear you, man. That that, that can't be good. <laughs> also joining us, Miss Brianna Alessio, who you can find over at Adventures of Bree at adventuresofbree.blogspot.com. And I believe she was actually the model for Pocahontas. Yeah, about a, a foot shorter. I don't know how they did that. Feeling a little bit yeah. under the weather today, so I'm going to try my best. I wanted to poke my head out of my little hibernation hole to join you guys. So, But you're mainly under the weather because you just returned mm -hmm. from Walt Disney World. Yeah, that definitely has something to do with it. Yeah, yes. I mean, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Yeah, hard hard charging Brie at Walt Disney World. Now you're now you're back to real life. It's tough, you know. I feel like I should have plans and I don't. And it's I right. feel lost. Or or you at least feel like you should get a Mickey bar. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I understand. Or or a Dole Whip, you know. Yeah. Some yeah. form of, of Disney Disneyfied ice cream. Yes. Should be the menu. Yes. All right. Also here, we have our fine producer who edits things uh, with the greatest of ease into semblance of coherence and lucidity that does not happen when we are recording the show. And that is Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, who you can follow on Twitter at Cheryl P3, or you can uh, go over and see her at about.me slash Cheryl P3. How are you, Miss Cheryl? I'm doing good. I'm hoping I won't be killed by our listeners after our, after our Captain Neo podcast. Never do you mean? I, I just want to say I was not on that show. I have no idea what she's talking about, but I blame all of you that are not me. Oh, Ryan, it went absolutely well. There was no pauses or us or anything. It, it was perfect. Uh huh. Yeah, I believe that. 
Yeah. All right. So, as you know, folks, we like to invite people from around the Disney community to join us from time to time. And today we have what Todd Perlmutter refers to as the number one super fan of the Disney Film Project. She is <laughs> on our Facebook page and you read our questions and answers. She's the person who sparks the best discussions. And for that, we thank her thank by putting her on the show and embarrassing her. That is <laughs> Rachel Sakowitz, who is joining us to discuss Pocahontas. How are you, Rachel? I'm good, thank you. And I appreciate the lovely introduction. I, I do my best. Uh, <laughs> you, will, you will come to regret joining us, but that's okay. <laughs> Everyone has to learn in their own way. I said it interesting that you, even though you're, you were j joking around that Brianna was the physical model for Pocahontas because it's a little weird considering that, you know, a person who's like around four or five years old would kind of be the model for, you know, an adult Disney princess. She's at, not the time the, at the time the movie came out, I think she meant. Oh, well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that time I was six, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I would have been, been the most awkward six-year-old ever. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would have been a, a problem. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, as you might have determined, we are talking about Pocahontas, the 33rd <laughs> animated feature from Walt Disney Feature Animation, released in 1995. Uh, part of the, the great string of big hits from Disney with music from Alan Menken and uh, directed by Eric Goldberg and Mike Gabriel. This is one of those where uh, they stepped outside. the. They kind of had two groups of directors going, Musker and Clements, who we've done a lot of their films, and uh, Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale. Uh, we've only done, I believe, one of their, or two of their films. Uh, but outside of those two, this is a new group of directors, and we'll, we'll see how they did. Uh, but as, as we all know, this is a uh, very true-to-life and historical documentary about the life of Pocahontas <laughs> and her encounters with the English. Uh, sort of. Yeah. And, and by sort of, you mean in no way whatsoever. Yes. The character names are the same. <laughs> Done. Mostly. So, some of the things, the, <laughs> the motive, actually, a lot of the motivations are the same too in the movie, but mm -hmm. a lot of what goes on is not the same. So you're telling me that there was not a talking willow tree? Well, there may have been, but I'd never read anything about it before. That would have been awesome. Mm -hmm. See, that's the kind of thing they should teach in history class. I agree. Well, I think that, Greg, yes, obviously, there weren't any literal talking trees, but I think the reason that they probably had talking trees is just that to kind of talk about how, like, you know, Native Americans were very much, you know, um, you know, connected to nature, and, you know, a lot of their um, elder spirits, you know, were, you know, embodied in nature. So I think that was kind of the point of the Grandmother Willow Tree. I do, yeah. I do think, though, that would have been awesome to have learned about talking willow trees in history class, as well as biscuit-loving raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. Yeah. I just I just feel like there should have been a point in the movie when Grandmother Willow got up and walked around on her roots and stomped all the Virginian roots. <laughs> I think the movie was going to happen had Pocahontas not done, had, had not made the decision to stand up. I think that's what was going to happen. You think so? Yep. I think it could have, yes. It could have. I agree with Cheryl. As we mentioned, this is based on historical figures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But this is the first uh, animated feature to actually in be based on a real historical figure. Okay, that's, that's an important thing. Though, like many things, uh, this was derided by Chief Crazy Horse. Okay, anybody know about Chief Crazy Horse? Yeah. Yes, and the like many things is a good, a good description of, of that. 
Yeah, uh, so he was the former but now deceased leader of the Poetan Renipi Nation. You may recognize the name Poetan as uh, the father of Pocahontas. He did things like he criticized the mythology about Christopher Columbus, uh, constantly everything about Indians and popular culture. Um, If you want to read more about the Poetan Renipi Nation, you can just visit poetan.org. I don't really want to go through, you know, get in a big discussion about it, but it's all there for online if you'd like to read about it. Cool. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the Native American population was not exactly thrilled with uh, this film. I think that's no. the best way to put it. No. Because Although said, I would is, argue that um, Russell Means would probably be one of, the Native, one of the only Native Americans that definitely praised the movie. He called um, this film as being like the single best representation of Americans that Hollywood has ever done. And then he goes on by saying that the truth has been told. Now, granted, of course, he doesn't necessarily mean sort of like the truth of Pocahontas' life, but more the fact that unlike Peter Pan... Um, treatment of Indians or like the Hollywood movies back in the 1950s where Indians um, were in them, this kind of portrayed Indians as being more than just the, ah, or the, you know, right, ones right. that kind of run around their tomahawks and, you know, just kind of savages or the fact that, um, you know, kind of glorified, you know, European imperialism. But I think this movie kind of shows sort of the downsides of European imperialism and also kind of giving more of a complexity and a humanity to, um, you know, the Native Americans. And I think even Irene Bedard, who also, you know, is Native American, I don't think, you know, said has anything negative to say. So I think, you know, if the movie was that offensive to Native Americans, I don't think Irene or Russell would do the film. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a catch twenty two sort of sort of business, right? Because the representation of of the uh, Native Americans in the film is actually quite good and and, and somewhat mm-hmm. true to their actual uh, lifestyles, at least from from what I know of it and from what I've read. But the, the historical inaccuracies and the fact that the English did not mistreat the Indians a little more than they did in the film, uh, it was definitely a source of controversy. And I just wanted to hear a little bit more about, Ryan, what you were saying about the representations of the Native, Native Americans and the settlers, if there's anything else that you had to say. No, it's just, it, it's interesting because, like you said, that they do portray them in the film as very much in touch with nature. Um, the whole Colors of the Wind sequence is right, you know, all about the fact that uh, mm-hmm. You know that they know what's going on with the land and those sorts of things. And Disney really put a big push behind that uh, representation out in the public in their advertising too of the film. Of you know they they, they really pushed that song as the key to the whole movie, which which I think it is. And then the the controversy came in, like I said, when a lot of the Native Americans said that. You know the the English in the film, although they are not portrayed lovingly, uh, like Mr. Governor Ratcliffe, uh, they do not mistreat the Indians in the way that they actually did in history. Yeah, I, like I, I think in New World, um, you know, which by the way is a um, film that is probably you know compared makes Pocahontas off Disney Pocahontas obviously look completely historically accurate. Not that it's historically accurate to begin with, but um, in the New World, um, you know. It, in the beginning of the film, I do notice that, you know, the, the English aren't, like, totally, you know, um, against the, you know, Native Americans. In fact, the Native Americans actually help them, you know, with navigating the land and giving them um, food. And it's interesting I bring up New World because two of the actors from Pocahontas are in the movie. You know, Christian Bale, who's the voice of Thomas from the Disney version, plays John Rolfe in the live-action film. And Irene Bedard um, plays Pocahontas' mother. I know, kind of go figure. Right. And I think they're also... Um, you know, some of the, there was, you know, Native American consultants. Like, I think there was, like, Shirley and Dove Costello. I think that's her name. I'm 
apologize if that's not accurate. You know, she definitely was one of the consultants um, for the film, even though she did, she was upset that Disney kind of misled her about the whole historical accuracy thing and using um, some of the facts that, you know, she had given. Um, in addition to that, even um, Irene talked about how um, she kind of, you know, gave a little bit of some information about how to kind of make the dialogue a little bit more um, reflect Native American culture. Like when Pocahontas is told about how, you know, she's going to someday be, you know, a great ruler for her people, she says, you know, I am honored by that. I, I think, like, we, we did Squanto, a warrior's tale, last, mm -hmm. last year with uh, <laughs> Squantini, the escape artist. <laughs> and... And I think that movie did a decent job, but we didn't spend much time with the actual Native Americans. Whereas this, you spend probably spend more time with the Native Americans <laughs> than you do with the English. Yeah. Uh, and I think they had to do a little, a little digger, deeper dive into what was going on there. And I, well, I think, on the whole, did a very good job. Yeah, it's because historically speaking, the story of Squanto and the story of Pocahontas do overlap a bit. Like mm -hmm. the yes. events are occurring at the same time, and both individuals did in fact know John Smith in real life. Okay. Right. Oh, that part I did not know. Please yeah. tell me more. Yeah. So, um, what happens is, is remember, Squanto was taken and brought to England. Okay, and it was in real life. It wasn't until much later, after John Smith left the New World, that Pocahontas was captured and brought to England. Who's bringing you to England? It's interesting pattern. Okay, and when Squanto comes back to England, it's actually under John Smith's protection. I mean, about, comes back to the New World from England. Oh, okay. Yeah, that I did not know. Yep. So hmm. it's uh, there is a connection there, and they, and both events and what they did, what both characters did in real life, at least, not the his, the historically truth stuff that's been figured out is they both were catalyst events for the um, Treaty of 1646 which was the original Virginia Treaty. None of which gets covered in the film. No, but is mentioned at the end of Squanto if you remember. So It is indeed. Yeah. See, I feel that the film Brother Bear is similar to Pocahontas in a way that we explore like this, not, not so much maybe spiritual, but the cultural nature of the Native mm -hmm. American people in a way. Well, I think about how we, I mean, I've never seen the thumbbacks in parts of it, but I assume it's supposed to be Inuit, I believe, the tribe. Mm. Yeah, I think it's Yeah, like, Brother Bear is. Yeah. Yeah. I know, to me, it just is somewhat similar in a way, which I, which I appreciate about the films, but... I like yeah. Brother Bear better. I find it interesting you guys bring up um, Squanto, because in this book I got from Amazon called The um, Art of Pocahontas, it talks about how after Mike Gabriel finished the film um, The Rescuers Down Under, he was thinking about doing his next anime feature, and it's interesting that it says right here, while Gabriel sat happily surrounded by his family enjoying the traditional Thanksgiving festivities, he found himself musing over exactly what project to tackle next, and of course that project um, was Pocahontas. Yeah. Well, I... Pocahontas and Lion King were both being worked on at the same time at this point yeah. in time. Yeah, I know so, you mentioned that in Lion King, yeah. Yeah, and there was a lot of contention because like we mentioned in Lion King, everybody thought Lion King was not going to be the better movie, and it ended up being the yeah. better and more popular movie. So Yeah, I remember Chris Sanders um, mentioned uh, when he first heard the story of Lion King, he thought it was the dumbest story that he ever heard. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of people that felt that way, and we talked about that. I mean, you know, everyone thought that this movie, Pocahontas, was going to be kind of the start of a new series of a little deeper, more serious films, you know, because they, they did Beauty and the Beast and they did Aladdin and they did Lion King 
and and those were all huge hits, but they were you know still fairy tales to a degree, right? Even even Lion King is somewhat of a fairy tale. Yep. Uh, and the thought process here was, well, Pocahontas is going to launch us into you know more deeper drama type movies, and you saw that with you know Hunchback came later, and uh, Treasure Planet, and Aladdin, and those things that were supposed to be a little a little deeper than your traditional fairy tale, and uh, frankly didn't that that turn didn't turn out great for the company. Mm. Good, but not not nearly as great as the things that uh, they had done before. Can we discuss Hiawatha a little bit? Please. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, I, I didn't watch on the Blu-ray because I don't have Blu-ray DVD. I mean, I have the DVD, like the player, but I still have the Blu-ray, though. That's, that's fine. The, the history for the Pocahontas movie actually goes back to the 40s when they were trying to figure out how they were going to uh, survive as a theater. I don't know what it is about, well, you know, all these Disney movies in the 90s always being, like, first mentioned, like, when Walt Disney was alive, like, with being the Beast and Lion, the Mermaid, and that kind of interesting pattern. Yep, yep. And if you remember, uh, in 1937, there was a silly symphony called Little Hiawatha. Okay. Which is fantastic, if you haven't seen it. Yes, yes it, it really is. is. And um, w- Walt had a very large fascination for Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who wrote the poem The Song of Hiawatha. And his 1940 idea was to base a movie on the Song of Hiawatha, and it went – the movie was completely storyboarded, planned out. Um, de- you know, They developed color palettes, artwork, designs, everything for this movie. Um, it eventually ended up being shelved in 1949 and sat there until when they thought about doing Pocahontas as a character for a movie, the, somebody in the archives called up and said, hey, you know what? I've got all this stuff. You might want to take a look at it. And it was all the storyboards and everything about Hiawatha. And so all the artwork and designs for Pocahontas are originally based on this original 1940s work for Hiawatha. Except for Pocahontas herself, right? Correct. Well, who's based on Irene Bedard, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I mean, like the colors, the color palettes, the way the forest looks, the way the Native Americans look. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I and I'll, I don't, you know, Native Americans, Indians. I realize there's a thing there, but it, it'll probably we'll probably say Indian a lot in this podcast. I just want to warn people because mm-hmm. that's how they're referred to in the movie. Yes. Um, what, yeah, what there's I, always a little controversy about you know what what's the politically correct word to use, whether it's Native American or Indian. Yeah, it's it's what it is. I believe I mean, it's American Indian is also acceptable. Mm-hmm. We may yes. want to, we may, I mean, that, that may be the way to, to use the term. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's a hard call because Indian actually comes from the fact that they thought they were discovering India, not America. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's, why, that's why they're called this Indians. Um, but what I really like on the Blu-ray is um, Hiawatha is um, storyboarded, right? So what they do is they actually walk you through the movie completely through the storyboards which is a fantastic feature on this, blue, on this new Blu-ray release. If anybody gets it, then they should really sit through this. I'm telling you. Yes, agreed. All right, so should we talk about the film and, and how, it, how it rolls, perhaps? Yeah. Because it's, it's interesting, uh, the opening of this one. You know, typically, we're all used to the, the old blue, blue background, white castle, you know, with the arc going over it before they switch to the new 3D uh, opening with the new Pirates films. But typically it has the, you know, the Walt Disney theme music behind it, right? And in this case, they actually open with the beating drums of the first song, Virginia Company, where everybody's boarding the ship and kind of fades into everyone boarding the ship in London to head for the New World with uh, Governor Ratcliffe and John Smith and everyone uh, getting on board singing their song about the, the Virginia Company. 
Um, I just find it interesting, like how when I was watching um the scene, and I by the way I love like the how the all the characters are um introduced during the scene. Um, when Ratcliffe is walking up towards the um boat, I noticed that there's a rat that alongside yes. walks on the road, and I didn't know if there was some kind of symbolism with that, as well as the fact that another kind of symbolic moment is when you have. Um, some of the settlers, you know, are all, you know, clustered together. And then the camera goes to John Smith and he's like, you know, far away. So, it, you know, in a way it kind of makes it clear that maybe John Smith is kind of, there's something individualistic about him that maybe he's, you know, there's something, there's something in this journey for him. Absolutely. I think, yeah. I think the whole idea of, uh, I was going to bring the rat thing up too, Rachel. Good, good eyes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because, because the whole thing is the movie uses animals as symbols throughout okay. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes in ways that are subtle that you don't know, like the rat thing. In if I had been watching this the first time, I might not have noticed it. You <laughs> well, know what I mean? This is the first time I'm noticing it, so yeah. yeah and I, I've seen this probably six or seven times, wow. and this was the first time I noticed it too. But they use they use the rat as a symbol for Ratcliffe again, ah, even. But, it's, but, yes. it's, but at the same time, it's it's kind of coincidental because you know the rat the character of Ratcliffe is actually based off of a real governor named Governor John. I think it was like John like Ratcliffe. Like, wasn't he like an actual governor? That's of correct. England? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 He was. Um, I, we can talk about it more. I mean, the but I do region- like that. I do like that. Um, you know, a little um, assertion, um, Ryan. I think that's interesting. I didn't realize that, but you know, at the same time, I think it's just coincidental. You know, more than like Disney actually being, um, you know, deliberate. No, I think. Well, I think. I think the use of the rat was deliberate, right? Not the use of his <laughs> actual name. The, they use the rat there, like you mentioned, right before we see John Smith. We see the eagle fly, or the, or the birds flying in with mm-hmm. him needing to be free. We see. Um, ah, I like that. The use of of Miko and Percy. If you look throughout the movie, it mirrors the relationship yeah. between the Native Americans and the and the uh, the settlers. Absolutely. I mean, the, the whole movie uses the animals as symbols, which it's gotten mm-hmm. criticized a lot for the Miko and Percy stuff. Yeah. And I think in yeah. some ways fairly, some ways unfairly. Mm-hmm. I think, too, because it had such a serious undertone to it. Yeah. That, you know, Disney, that it, that's one reason why Disney didn't want the talking animals in the first place, I think, because they kind of felt that, you know, in a way, that would kind of be a problem with the movie. And also, I think they were just trying to be um, different. But I like this one comment that I was watching Nostalgic Critic, which you can find on YouTube, and he mentioned... Um, that one that you know for a movie that's all about nature, you know, he says, you know, you know, wait, the trees can talk, but the animals can't. Right. Right. I think well, because the, the tree is representative of a spiritual guide yeah, for Pocahontas. I, mean, I think, that, I, yeah, of course. I, I agree. And totem animals never speak traditionally in um, Native American lore. They always they always guide. They never right. speak. So I think that's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be representative of totems. Because if you pay close attention, right, a lot of the mystical characters that appear, like the leaves blowing and stuff like that, and the symbols that they kind of transform to it, into, in and out of as they blow around, those are all totem symbols. So I think that that's part of what's going on as well. So, and I agree with Brianna. That's why the, that's why the tree speaks and the animals don't. Right. Though, though there was getting deep into the movie already. Yeah, well, there was the John Candy character that was removed when he died. But there was also another actor that um, was also considered for um, Pocahontas. It was the character of Old Man River, and he was supposed to be like this river where like his voice would appear, kind of like where the river um, converges. And originally, that that he was supposed to be kind of like the equivalent for what would later become Grandmother Willow. And he felt that the character, he felt that Pocahontas would kind of benefit better if you know she had like um, you know a maternal source of wisdom rather than a paternal source 
And, you know, as much as it pained Gregory Peck to turn down the role, it was kind of necessary. And I find that kind of bittersweet because Gregory Peck, of course, mentioned that you know, one of his dreams in life was to be in a Disney movie. So it kind of seems a little sad that he's kind of giving that up. Right. Yeah. Definitely. But so, like we said, they're, they're, they join the ship and sail for the Virginia uh, colony. And can I, can I interject a sec? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the ship's name isn't given, but in reality, the, the ship's name would be the Discovery. There were actually. I thought it was the Susan Constant. At least that's what I heard from the um, audio commentary. Oh no, Ratcliffe's ship in real life was the Discovery. There were three ships that actually went over to found the colony. They only send one ship over in the movie, but but the Virginia Company actually sent three on this journey in real mm-hmm. life. And the one that Ratcliffe specifically ran was the Discovery. So then, what's the point of the Susan Constant then? I'm not sure. Okay. It was probably one of the other ships. <laughs> But I know Rack, I, I know if you read about Ratcliffe, his his history says that his ship was a discovery. So they they join the ship and get caught in a storm right away, and it's uh, John Smith who has to go dive overboard and save Thomas, the young young inexperienced man uh, who falls overboard during the storm. Ties Smith ties himself to the mast and dives overboard, is able to save him. So we should mention too, like you'd mentioned, Rachel, that Thomas is voiced by Christian Bale. Uh, Mel Gibson uh, voices John Smith, uh, and this is back before he went crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the kind of the joys of watching the movie is kind of, you know, the nostalgia of, like, you know, isn't that ironic that, you know, a guy who was a character who, you know, learns about that you shouldn't be racist towards other people kind of makes that, you know, um, mistake. I remember that on IMDb. It was, you know, it ended with, you know, we've only life imitated art. And this was yeah. the first film you actually hear Mel Gibson sing in. How about that? He actually wasn't bad, although I wasn't so much a big fan of him singing um, If I Never um, Knew You. I, I don't think he's like a tenor, because like, when he hits behind us, just, it just kind of comes across as just being a little bit, um, yeah. You I know? try and but pretend it's not Mel Gibson. Not yeah, yeah I, I was doing the I same think. thing, Ty. <laughs> 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 I know. I was uh, like I, some strapping blonde gentleman, you know, like in my head. Not Mel Gibson. I don't know. I just kind of feel it was inappropriate casting. I don't think he was appropriate for the role, to be honest. No. I think back then he may have been appropriate. Again, we're talking yeah. we're talking the 90s. I, you know. I think he was cast for his popularity, which is what Disney yeah. did a lot at this point in time, but I don't think he was an appropriate actor for okay. this role. I think they could have found someone better. I think also, they should stay oh. with Sean Bean, because I know he was in The Running. Yeah, that that that's true. I was just going to um, mention that, and of course, I know Sean Bean because you guys mentioned him in, um, you know, the podcast on National Treasure. Right. Yeah. I yep. think that actually would have been a better choice. I actually, well, think it's um, it's interesting that they cast Mel's brother in the sequel. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. So true. I mean, at this point, they they totally had the option to get whatever person they wanted, and yet they stay with that. In the sequel is is a little bit interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see how it's a little distracting hearing Mel's voice, me especially because, of course, you know, I'm Jewish, and you know, I might have a little bit, you know, personal bias against um, you know, Mel Gibson. But I actually didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I actually think he, you know, did, um, you know, pretty good. I, I mean, I still like his character. I don't think it was so bad to the point that it makes his character, you know, unlikable or anything like that. I'll right. give a different example. It's not like we're Todd. I mean. One of the other characters we've spoken about before was Home on the Range with Roseanne Barr, which Todd, which Todd got lambasted for his his hatred of Roseanne Barr. But, it, you can, but it's, it's the same type of 
controversy there. I yeah, mean, I don't, I don't necessarily hate Mel Gibson as an actor. I'm just saying I think he was an appropriate actor for the role. Uh-huh. That's yeah, well, remember, remember, guys, this is the time when Jeffrey Katzenberg was in charge of the studio. And if you've seen the way he works at DreamWorks, I mean, he was all about getting the big star yeah. to, uh-huh. to help sell the movie. And so, that, I mean, if you remember back... Um, when you were six, Brie, and, and all the commercials that you saw for Pocahontas. Uh, I mean, I was only two when that movie came out. There you go, Rachel. I know you remember it well. Uh, <laughs> the fact that they, they used Mel Gibson to sell this movie. I mean, no, no two ways about it. You know, yeah. they, knew, they knew they had a little bit of a, a difficult upsell for this, and they, used, they really played off the fact that he was in it. So, Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of going on with the whole, you know, actor, you know, actors who almost got the role or anything like that. Um, for the role of um, Gumber Ratcliffe, um, according to IMDb, Rupert Everett, Stephen Fry, and Patrick Stewart were considered for the um, role of Governor Ratcliffe. And interestingly enough, um, Richard White, you know, who we obviously know is the voice of um, Gaston from Being the Beast, was also going to voice Governor Ratcliffe, but the filmmakers felt um, that, you know, people would watch the film and be like, oh my God, you know, that's Gaston, you know, trapped in, you know, a musker guy trapped in, you know, a, a round guy's body. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I would have had that problem. I'm not going to lie. Actually, Brie met recently met Gaston. I yeah. did <laughs> at the Villains Bash at, at Hollywood Studios. Nice. <laughs> that was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he was a nice guy. He just played a very evil character. Yeah. There you go. So they when they finally make it to the New World, before we get there, they, we have to flash over and see what's going on with Pocahontas because all of this happens before the title card, right? Yeah. Um, when we see that it is Pocahontas, uh, we see the warriors returning from a battle, the Indian warriors, mm-hmm. with uh, Chief Poetan, who comes up and presents Kokowum, who was the, the person who won the battle for them. And Pocahontas had been off running around, as she is wont to do, very much like Merida. She's running in the forest and letting her hair run free. There is a similarity there. That's actually good that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a definite similarity. Since we're talking about the Brave connection, one of the, uh, the father who from Brave was... Yeah, Billy Connolly. Sorry, I gave it yeah. away. That's fine. Yeah, it was like Billy Connolly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, ta- the city that they're going to in the tribal nation at, is historically is Werewoko Moko. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, is the, that is the capital of the Poetan Nation at this point historical time period so uh, I just wanted to interject that mm-hmm. nothing special there yeah. that's just where they are it's never actually said in the movie but I like finding things like that out Yeah. nice to know Yeah. But, um, yes it's Kokowum who uh, Chief Poetan has decided will marry uh, Pocahontas yeah. he, he's, he presents her and says Kokowum's asked for your hand and you know it's all good and you're going to marry him she's like um okay I guess so it, Historically, Kokowum was her first husband. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the irony there. Well, we don't know. Well, okay, we do know because there was a sequel. But if they hadn't made a terrible sequel, uh, we might not know. And he could have become her first husband after John well, Smith left. You know. Well, other than that, he gets shot and killed. Well, okay, sure, but I'm saying... <laughs> <laughs> the sequel is also historically accurate, by the way, despite that it upset Cheryl. It is, or, or is it historically accurate as this one? No, it's actually more historically ac- accurate, strangely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a little disturbing, but okay. Yeah, no, no, she really does go on to not marry John Smith and marry John Ralph, as, mm-hmm. and that's who her second husband is. But that's after she's been thrown into slavery, forcibly converted to Christianity, and given the uh, name Rebecca. 
There you go. But so the chief gives Pocahontas her mother's necklace, which if you ever see Pocahontas out and about in the Disney parks, you'll see her wearing that necklace. It's part mm-hmm. of her costume, and she then takes that necklace. It's a it's a present, but it's also meant to represent that she's now assumed sort of the quote unquote queen role of the tribe. Right. I feel like it kind of reminds me a bit of Lion King with the whole, you know, especially um, when Mufasa is talking to Simba about the whole, like, you know, one day the sun will set on my time and it'll rise, you know, when it comes to yours. And, you know, um, Pocahontas does feel much like with adult Simba, you know, even though she has to take, kind of take responsibility as being the in charge of her people, she does kind of feel like there are times when she doesn't really want that role. Like she kind of wants just to kind of run around and just kind of be free. Yeah. She, she's also trying to tell her father something, and his, her father is not listening. And it's not, not at all. And it's not specifically about Kokowum, even though that's not something she really wants to get involved with. But she's, she's had this dream, which she mentions to her buddy, Nokuma. Right? Nokuma. Yes. Nokuma, even though, didn't she play Nokuma in um, uh, Skanto's Warriors Tale? Um, I'm so confused as to all these movies because all the same actors are in all, all these all the movies. I hate to say that, and, but I can't keep track of it. I'm very bad it's at okay. the character. Who plays characters? Um, but you know, you might—you're probably right. It, I mean, it's Nakoma. Nakoma. Interesting. It's just interesting. I remember from the IO commentary. Um, I think it was my Gabriel that said that um, originally Michelle St. John, who voices Nakoma um, in the film, was originally up for um, the part of Pocahontas before Irene Bedard got it. All right. Interesting. But so yes, so that's that's when we are introduced to the other supporting characters in Pocahontas's world because she goes to visit Grandmother Willow, who we mentioned before, a spiritual talking willow tree. Again, very historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and accompanying her on this journey is Miko the raccoon and the hummingbird Flit. Yes, who are controversial characters, like we mentioned, because of the fact that they do not talk and they are there solely for comic relief. You know what it actually reminded me of was the uh, the whole bird and worm plot in Fox and the Hound. Hmm. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, that's actually really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the river that they're on, by the way, is the Chickahominy River, mm-hmm. which is actually a, um, a well known river in Virginia for it. For that fork that she's at, is like a very famous place that people who are hiking go and visit and stuff like that mm-hmm. so you i mean I the fork that, like where it like splits up kind of thing right between the, well the fork is metaphorical right if you pay attention to what's going on in the movie at the time because her father wants her to remain steady and yeah. flow evenly and lead her people and she wants to experience life and possibly do what her father wants her to do i love that part of the film too because it's during the song around the river bend and mm-hmm how she has to make that decision. And like you were saying, Todd, it is metaphorical in the film and symbolic for what's going on. Yeah, cause, right, because the, cause the, left, the left fork is very steady and the right fork is rapids. And right. so that's, that's the choice. And she ends up picking the rapid side. Um, but also, yeah. I, I love that you mentioned the song just around the river because that's actually my favorite song in the movie. So there you me, go. Me too. Me too, man. I did want to mention my... we did need Flit in this movie because he is our Star Wars connection. He is. No way. Yeah, he's been the voice in three Star Wars video games. Yeah, actually, the characters, the flick character is actually a little weird, right? Because they, he's a hummingbird, but they, they um, animate him like he's a bee because he goes around stinging everything with his nose almost. Yeah. You know who's not monkeying around in this movie is Governor Reckless. He, he is there and immediately starts talking about, you know, how they need to set up a fortress. And he calls it Jamestown, right? Yes. After King James. Uh, which I believe that part is at least historically accurate. It, it is. 
Um, it was the, it's the Jamestown Township, and you have to remember, like we said, the the Virginia company was a real company, right? We talked about this a little bit, yeah. but um, and they were under charter, much like you know, going back to pirates, much like the East India Company was before them. They uh, they received a similar charter to go explore the New World, and they were specifically sent there by King James to find gold. So yes. that's all truthful. Yes, because the the. Native Americans have, have determined that there are people there because Grandma the Willow told her and uh, the other scouts have seen them, but they don't, they don't quite know what to do about it quite yet, right? Uh, and John Smith goes out to explore the wilderness. So <laughs> he, this is when we get the encounter with, with he and Pocahontas, which uh, I, really this is the part where I can see the criticisms that people have made that, that Pocahontas... I, did, I know I did. I mentioned this on Facebook about this as well. Yeah. Pocahontas is a little, um, I don't know the, the most delicate way to put it, uh, Victoria's Secret Model-esque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because they encounter each other, you know, he jumps through a, a waterfall to encounter her, and there's like the mist is swirling around her, and her hair is blowing in the breeze and that sort of thing. Now, we have to remember that the actual Pocahontas was mm-hmm. a young girl, not a full-fledged woman as we see here right and there was no relationship correct and and they work really hard in this movie to establish that relationship i mean it's the core of the film uh and we'll talk about a little bit later about something that they actually cut out of the film i think could have made that relationship stronger but on Mm -hmm. the whole i think they do a pretty good job of establishing that relationship but this is the one time in the movie that i can go yeah that that's a little much Right, the portrayal of, of Pocahontas as a, yeah. as a full woman. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember talking about Facebook how basically okay, I felt then. that it was a little wokeist <laughs> that um, you know, like you know, first of all, this is what I, this is what I thought when I'm watching the this scene. Um, the fact that John Smith doesn't shoot, not because I want him to do that. I mean, God forbid that he actually does, but you know, and aside the point that you know his the wick from his um, musket, you know, would have gone off had he, you know, jumped through the waterfall. But it was just the fact that it seemed as if, like, oh, it's because she's gorgeous, that's why he kind of doesn't shoot her. Because then I'm thinking, like, well, if she was conventionally ugly, you know, what would happen? It just kind of seems like, you know, to me that was a bit um, kind of shocking. And also I think it was the fact that, you know, Pocahontas does have, you know, an appearance that, you know, um, for lack of a better word, is kind of hypersexualized. I understand that may not be a G-rated way of saying it, but, you know, with the full yeah. lips and long hair and, you know, I mean, there's even, like, one shot in that scene where you see her face, and I'm, and I'm just thinking, like, wow, I can't believe this is Disney with the, you know, full, with, you know, especially when you see her full ups and eye, eye, eyelashes and just, like, you know, the lines are a little more um, emphasized than, you know, in any other, you know, um, drawing of, um, you know, Pocahontas. And I like what Todd said about that scene, that it was more about, you know, him kind of rejecting all of, you know, what the culture has told him about Native Americans, much like how, you know, Phoebus kind of, you know, a guy who's supposed to be sent to, you know, eliminate a certain race sees this, a beautiful woman and, is, and you know, his whole mindset changes. Right. Well, remember early on on the boat, right? He makes this comment to the men when they ask what he's going to do in the New World. And he says, well, I've seen a lot of New Worlds already, and they've all had nothing to offer me. And he was not going here expecting what he found. I, mean, I would take it with a grain of salt. The whole has nothing to offer me just because it seems like, you know— what, like, no beautiful women? Is that kind of it? No, no, I don't think that's what he meant. I mean, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm not trying to accuse Disney of yeah, all the yeah, motives, yeah. but I was just kind of being a little bit um, sarcastic about it. That's fine. 
can I correct you on one point though? Um, oh, he's, sure. They're using a matchlock musket, and guess what? Matchlock muskets, the whisks are soaked in oil and covered in wax, so chances are if it got wet, it would actually stay lit. And they, uh, were, just, and they were actually brought by the people on the boats because while other gut types of guns worked at the t existed at the time, they yeah. didn't do well with the air from the salt water of the ocean when they traveled, but, mm -hmm. but ma matchlock muskets did because they would last the journey they wouldn't, and rust didn't affect them. You mean and like so basically waterproof? Somewhat. Um, if you totally soak the, um, the gunpowder, it's no good. And you can wash, and under a water, Krogutter waterfall might have been the bigger problem because it might have knocked all the, it might have washed off all the um, gunpowder. But uh, as long as the wick is inside a pile of gunpowder and only the outside of the gunpowder will really get wet, so it can still ignite a, and project a projectile. And Todd, I thought you were sleeping during all these episodes of Pond Stars. <laughs> About guns. I've actually fired a matchlock musket before. <laughs> oh no, no, it's it's fine. So, um, in um, Massachusetts is a uh, co commonwealth, and it's fi it's combined of townships, and a lot of the townships are old old um, places, and they actually have rules like you know cows must graze three times a year on the common grounds, or things like once a year you have to fire a musket in a particular town. And I have a friend who was actually in charge of the town's musket, and I got to fire it one year for discharging. That is fantastic, and I'm immensely jealous right now. Yeah. Yes. So it was, that's so. I, and let me tell you, it knocked me flat on my rear. <laughs> they, stronger than any handgun I've ever tried firing. Wow. Yeah. Obviously, what makes his journey to Jamestown much different than the other ones, besides the obvious, like oh, he gets to meet you know a beautiful woman, is well, what else is there? You know that you know makes this journey different for him than the other ones. Well, remember, by this point in time, they've been to the English have uh, explored Turkey. They've been down the China Road. Um, they've done all sorts of things like that. And I think that's what he meant. Is he he was looking for more than what those lands had to offer him. And I don't I don't just mean looking for a woman. Okay, mm -hmm. I mean like like the nature, the beauty, the and I because and that's I think that's really shown in this scene when he's wandering around and she's following him. Is yeah. he is amazed by everything in front of him, right? I just love that shot of her like when you see her face coming out of like the trees, like you know making obvious like oh I'm stalking you. I thought it was interesting <laughs> that she was seeing that he's stalking her. But when he spots her over his shoulder and she doesn't know she's been spotted and she kind of sneaks along the rock and like is doing this crouchy like tiger. Yeah. Thing. Well, basically, I want to, if we probably have time, um, discuss um, just more about the um, the encounter because it is a bit confusing to me. Um, one, you know, why Pocahontas, you know, runs once John Smith, um, you know, approaches her. That kind of confusing a bit because this, here's a woman who, you know, was kind of following him, you know, for hours and you know seems very interested. And all of a sudden, she's just kind of you know nervous and just running away. I would have bought into it maybe if she was playing one of those like, oh, I'm just gonna play hard to get kind of types. You know, like I'm gonna make it a little more difficult for him. And then second, um, when John Smith um, tries to talk to her, she says, you know, in her native tongue, which translates to, you know, I don't understand. And to me, that was just kind of difficult for me to kind of understand why that the whole language barrier was necessary because a, she already knows English, obviously, you know. As no. you know, we have seen. No, oh, no, I, I disagree. So this is a commonly done thing in a movie. Is is what happens is when a culture is speaking amongst themselves in a movie, and you're an English audience watching the movie. I understand they, that. Yeah, yeah. So all all up until this point, when we've seen the Indians, there's been no interaction between the Native Americans and the English, right? Mm -hmm. So right. 
what's going on is when you're with the English, obviously they're speaking English. And when the Native Americans are, they're speaking their native tongue, just you're hearing it as English because otherwise the entire scene would be in subtitles. So when yeah, it gets. What if the person who's able to be in subtitles had it been no, no, but I'm just saying if it was like a new world, you know, the characters speaking their own languages, and then all of a sudden Pocahontas learned English, she went from speaking Algonquin to English, to me that just would have been um, more believable. Granted, of course, nobody learns English um, that fast, but still. But she, but she magically got the superpower to speak English. Yeah, because. Well, <laughs> let's, let's talk. I never saw so much of her just speaking English because it's a translation of what she's really saying and, you know, her Cheryl, tongue. And Cheryl pointed that out to me, too. Cheryl's interpretation of – because we actually pause the movie a lot and discuss some things like, like this point – is that at that point, because the spirits were telling her to – remember Grandmother Will said, open your yeah. heart, open your ears, listen, <laughs> right? That whole thing. There, when she does, the spirits start translating the words from her mouth to John Smith and from her mm-hmm. – and from her ability to hear him in her native tongue. So what's going on there is that – and I agree with Cheryl. That makes the most sense as to what's really going on. But from appearances, it's like she magically gets the superpower to speak English. <laughs> yeah, like I just open. Also, if, yeah. you, um, if you watch Brother – most of where I got this from is um, Brother Bear 2 um, did use this exact same concept um, because – the, the 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 girl had to in in the plot the girl's plot was to she had to end the end the relationship with the guy who had turned who was currently a bear. So right. the spirits gave her the power to not to go from speaking whatever language she was speaking to speaking bear. Yeah, John Carter does the same. Mm-hmm. Right, he spends a significant portion of time not being able to discuss anything with the um, with mm-hmm. the people, and then he drinks this thing, and suddenly he can magically understand yeah. their language. He, I mean, and, but they start speaking English so that we as yeah. English, you know, can hear it. Yeah, I mean, I understand. Obviously, they put the English the English speaking natives, obviously, because of the sake of the audience. I I respect that. I understand that, but I think it's just weird, you know hearing, in the, in the context of the story, not in the context of, you know, the audience, that a character who speaks English kind of all of a sudden has these leaves and she kind of speaks English as if I'm like, you know, didn't she kind of already know English before? It kind of seems obvious. I don't think she would have known English. Okay. Um, I think, I, I mean, because she was speaking definite Indian before. Right. When, mm-hmm. when well, I mean, she yeah, she's a Lingapo and, you know, you do hear a little bit of some, you know, palettes and language, you know, Incorporated into the um, movie, I understand that. Yep, but at this point is when, we, like I said, we get the we get the swirling leaves, and this is a motif that we that goes through the entire film, and it's kind of when those things, yep, when those things swirl around, then there's a, an understanding that passes between the people that are there, right? Yeah. And this is one one instance of it where John Smith and, and Pocahontas start understanding each other. They speak in English and they start falling in love, um, mm-hmm. and we'll see it again later. Mm-hmm. But the, the the interesting thing is that meanwhile the kind of the juxtaposition of this is the English are doing the mine 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 with uh, Governor Ratcliffe, which is <laughs> the, the new dance craze that's sweeping the nation as they, uh, right? they they dig up all the gold that doesn't exist in the new world. So you know how there's like a big conversation about how in the '70s there was more kryptonite on the planet Earth than there was landmass on the planet Earth. Yes, they had an awful lot of explosives in this movie. Yeah, they did. It's a good point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
This is interesting. Um, that originally the end, the the ending of the song "Mine" um had, you know, Governor Ratcliffe on top of this sort of mountain, and you know everything was blown up, and the audience members had seen this. Um, the audiences and the previous audiences saw this, and it, you know, reminding that being reminded of you know the aftermath of you know Hirosh the you know the the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima, in, in during World War II, they were just kind of like so disgruntled, so shocked, and you know, and for some reason the filmmakers kind of. Um, had to change the um, that that shot to just simply you know a close up of Rackham's face, even though that was kind of the intention of the um, preview audiences to kind of get upset and shocked over just like how much of the land just had been blown up. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Indeed, indeed. It's a great juxtaposition by the filmmakers, though, because you see as John Smith and Pocahontas are coming together, you see the English tearing up the land with their with their digging. And we get the scene of the Poetan uh, talking and talking about the white man in the smoke, right? The smoke yeah. comes up and it's like they they shine like the sun and they their weapons shoot fire. And we see instantly the, the misunderstanding between the two cultures when there's really, you know, with the exception of Ratcliffe, there's not a lot there uh, to cause them to be enemies. Right. In fact, there's a, there's a scene where the other men are even starting to question why they're bothering to do this whole thing. You, you, exactly, you know, yeah. You know, they're, they're like, well, why are we digging? We're not finding anything. We've been at this for, like, days. And, in fact, it was in, – in historically speaking, they were there for two years before they gave up digging for gold. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. Uh. How did you manage it, Todd? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, after a while, I had to introduce some pulley systems and stuff that they hadn't really been very good with and, you know, teach them some extra things to make it That's go good. a little smoother. That's <laughs> good. I pre- I, I'm sure they appreciated that. Yeah. And then I usurped Governor Radcliffe. It was very messy. Yeah. Oh, my. Well, he needed usurping because we, yes. haven't, we haven't mentioned uh, he is portrayed by David Ogden Steers, another Disney favorite of this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, both he and his little manservant are voiced by Steers. Yes, which I think is are. great. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Well, uh, mm-hmm. Steers, Steers once did a one-man show that used to be that was on HBO, and it mm-hmm. it reminded me of that a little bit because he he was doing all the characters. You know, him playing off himself was very interesting. He's fantastic. I loved him in Mash. Yes, yes. Charles Emerson Winchester. I would like to yeah. put Buzz and say he should be on Once Upon a Time somehow. I would love um, that. Yes, please let him get a character opening on Once Upon a please, Time. Please, ABC, if you're listening, please, please, please let this happen. The guest spot, even. <laughs> yeah. We would love it. There's so many characters on the show, they all kind of are guest spots. <laughs> I, I haven't caught up yet, but I'm, gonna wor- I'm working on it, I promise. Okay. It won't spoil. No. All right, please don't. They all, they all die in a fire car crash. They- oh, goodness, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> wow. Last episode, you missed it, Ryan. <laughs> oh no, mm-hmm. no good. No. All right, yeah. but the other yeah. thing that's going on at the same time is is we talked about earlier Miko and Percy, right? Because Percy is sitting there with his uh, all sorts of treats in the bath, right? His mm-hmm. cherries, and Miko jumps in and, and eats all of those. And then there's a later scene where mm-hmm. Percy has a carousel of, of dog biscuits that that Miko jumps in and starts eating. I love so, that. I mean, like I said, it's very much like the fox and the hound with the bird and the worm in that yeah. it just seems to be some kind of comic relief. But there's, it, there's yeah. a little deeper symbolism to it in this one than that, right? Yeah. Because of the Even the relationship. Man, I don't think the natives stole their cherries. You never, you never know. <laughs> so we definitely need Percy because here's our Avengers connection. Because Danny Mann um, 
plays the Mad Thinker in Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. Ah, there you go. The Mad Thinker is a guy who builds, like, weapons and stuff like that. And and does lots of thinking. Which we recently made rewatch recently, and hope she'll keep on watching. I love it. I am so interested now. Um, Yeah. It is a fantastic show. You guys have to give me, like, the times that the show is on so I can DVR it. Uh, we can arrange that. Yes, okay. we can. Sunday morning, so. Same. Okay, I can do that. Yep. So the whole the whole middle of the film is this is this kind of like these four stories, uh, flittering back and forth. Uh, if you will pardon my hummingbird flit pun, huh. it's it's huh. John Smith and Pocahontas. You know, John Smith keeps sneaking off to meet Pocahontas, and and she's doing the same. We see the. American American Indian tribes, you know, gathering. The, the the warriors are coming and they're they're preparing for war. And we see Ratcliffe and his team, you know, d- trying to dig up the countryside while also, you know, the savages, quote unquote, uh, come to observe them. And they have a, a brief skirmish where they're firing at uh, the Native Americans while the while they are shooting arrows at each other. And Thomas makes a inadvertent shot at Ratcliffe, which you know should have hit him, but you know that probably wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but it would have been so much easier. Yeah, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it though? Uh, but and that would have been the, the end of the movie a bit. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got the Miko Percy fight that's going on at the same time. So it's all this stuff kind of swirling around together, with the undercurrent being that you know Pocahontas and John Smith are the only two who are really reaching out to each other, who are mm-hmm. trying to understand each other, and that comes to a head when you know everybody, like we said, is gathered for war. John Smith goes back to. Uh, to Jamestown, and Governor Ratcliffe says, you know, we're, we're getting ready to attack, we're going to destroy the savages, because he hasn't seen Smith. Smith's been out hanging out with Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. And it's bef- right before, it, it's right after they did the Colors of the Wind sequence, because she explains to him, he comes through, uh, and this is where I was the most uncomfortable with the Mel Gibson part, because he's being a little, you know, blockheaded and, you know, calling her a savage. And yeah. that's when she introduces the Colors of the Wind song and explains, wait, wait. like, is, here's all the it, things you missed. Isn't that real life for Mel Gibson? <laughs> it, it is, but it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Can I cue an excerpt of that? And I do yeah. want to take, take a second and apologize to Mel Gibson fans out there. We're, yeah. We understand yeah. your stance, but you have to yeah. understand ours. And I kind of like the scene, sort of like when John Smith kind of becomes insensitive. Not because I agree with it, but I just like... The fact that Pocahontas, you know, as offended as she is, she doesn't, like, attack him or get, like, all defensive about it. She just kind of, you know, simply tries to take it, you know, in a very, you know, respectful kind of, you know, like, she doesn't, I'm not saying she tolerates it, but at least she, you know, handles it in a more healthy way. And also, I kind of like it how, um, you know, when she's, like, saying, when he says, you know, when he calls her savage, and then he's just like, not, not, you know, that, not that you're a savage, and she says, just my people, in which I jokingly thought. So what he's really saying is, I can, I'll, I'll eliminate your whole race, but I'll just keep you in it. <laughs> well, by the same token, I mean that that is a fundamental theme for the rest of the movie. Yeah, is, exactly. is 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 this is what's going on? Is there's cultural conflict? There's two groups that don't understand each other, and they both view each other as savages, right? Because we also have that scene where the shaman uh, conjures up the whole thing about the white men and how they're wolves and how they only take 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 and mm-hmm. they don't know how to give back or anything like that. So there's a there's a whole negative concept there. Not that that's necessarily incorrect, you know, but it's it's a con it's a conflict because it's a misunderstanding. Yeah, exactly. And I also kind of like how like when John Smith, you know, I, this is probably something I'll maybe notices, but the way that 
um, Pocahontas climbs a tree and John Smith climbs. Pocahontas is very sort of fluid and graceful about it, but John Smith is kind of very clumsy and kind of struggling, you know, with one leg, you know, over the branch and like the other one below it. And it's, I just love how, like, when he says to me, what I mean, what I mean by civilized is and he grabs a branch, and of course, I think I can kind of fill in the blank and think, I jokingly said, you know, I guess what he means by civilized is, you know, falling off trees and kind of obeying laws of gravity, unlike Pocahontas, who kind of sort of defies the law of gravity, especially in the beginning of the movie, where, at least in the beginning of the movie, where, you know, she kind of, you know, jumps into the um, cliff, even without an awareness that, you know, she's going to, you know, like, possibly die, you know, if anybody's ever jumped up a cliff, I don't think it's usually safe. Right. And I like how, but of course I think the scene's important because it does segue to, um, you know, uh, Colors of the Wind when she says, what you mean is not like you. And the only question I have about Colors of the Wind is what the actual title of the song means. I mean, I know what it's about, but I just don't actually understand the actual words, Colors of the Wind. So I was hoping that you can kind of explain that. Um, I think that Colors is supposed to represent kind of accepting the various cultural differences of people. And so colors of the wind, like when you feel the wind, just think about, just think about it encircling the different heritage of various people and accepting people for who they are. That's how I I feel. I think that's good. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of going with whatever somebody has to say because I kind of don't know. So I just have to hear from somebody. Yeah. Yeah, No. I, I like that explanation. I mean, there's all there's all sorts of possibilities there, but I think that I think that the the willingness to that you, there's not only one way to look at things, right? You, right. you wouldn't you wouldn't say wind has color because when you look at wind, you don't see anything; you feel it, right? Exactly. But she's saying that there's more to perception than what you perceive. Ah, interesting. Yeah. A lot of this film is about accepting differences and how important it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Though, again, but, not my favorite song, not my most favorite song in the movie. Just Yeah, I'm with you, Todd. I'm with Just Around the River Bend. It's good stuff. And yeah, it's so- a great, great segment in World of Color, too. <laughs> so, the, that Colors of the Wind sequence segues into what we were talking about before of the, when they come together on uh, Pocahontas with her tribe and John Smith with the English. Because John season. Smith, yeah, John Smith goes and Ratcliffe is saying, you know, oh, well, good, you've scouted the terrain and we can go and kill the savages. And he says, well, what if they're not savages? What if they're not what we think they are? And Ratcliffe puts out the decree, you know, that if anyone is, is seen consorting with the enemy, that they will be put in chains and, and arrested and you know, mm-hmm. he, and it's sort of the same thing on the other side, right? Because Pocahontas goes, and the warriors from the other tribes have arrived, and they're going to council to figure out how they will attack. And uh, Pocahontas's father, Chief Poetan, says, "You know, no, no one shall be seen with the white man." And mm-hmm. she begs him to listen. Like, if somebody were to come forward, you would listen to them, right? And and he, you know, basically tries to brush her off, just like, yeah, 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 of course I would. But he doesn't really mean it. You know what I mean? And it's the misunderstanding is still going on. But we at least have one person on each side who's trying to break through. uh, And it's where everything sort of intersects and starts coming to a head. Mm-hmm. I just love, like, in Colors of the Wind that, you know, it just shows, like, how, you know, like, it's, it's, there's something sort of feminist about the idea that instead of, like, a man trying to tell a woman how to kind of live life or see things, she's kind of teaching him about tolerance and respect and the fact that she's not going to fall, you know, victim to, you know, his imperialistic ways all in a matter of, like, two minutes. <laughs> as, as opposed to Judge Froyo singing about evil women, right? 
Um, I guess you can kind of. Um, I, 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 don't I, was, I, don't, I never thought of it that way. I was joking. I wasn't being serious. I would think that people are sort of similar in the fact that, you know, they're both genocidal and they just are so caught up in their ignorance and prejudice. Like, like just, it's like they're so out of reality. As you said before, you know, it's like, you know, they're out in space, going off the deep end out in space kind of type. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just kind of, it was ridiculous, like, how delusional, you know, Ratcliffe, you know, really, really was about this whole thing about gold. I mean, they, I don't even know if there was gold in Virginia. I'm from Virginia, but I don't know if there's actual gold. That, that uh, as, as far as I know, none was ever found. There's probably oil, I'm guessing. Oil in them, they're Virginia. There's also oil in the Middle East, but I guess, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, he, right. Well, that's that's important, right? Because that there's this scene where Rachel and I have talked about this on Facebook is where she uh, takes Smith to basically continue what she was trying to teach him uh, in the Colors of the Wind song. She sets him up to be observed by Grandmother Willow, who then starts talking to him, and he freaks out. <laughs> I love it. It's a classic kind of the sort of oh my god. I'm in a Disney movie kind of thing. Like, you have to kind of understand that everything kind of talks. It's one of those classic moments in Disney's where characters kind of forget that they're in a Disney movie. Like when Flynn Rider says, you know, I don't sing. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's, that's not part of the rules of a Disney movie. If you're in the movie, you got to sing. It's also one of the funniest moments in the Disney movie. I think it's like when he says, like when Pocahontas is acting as if it's like, you know, then you should back to it, like kind of go along with, you know, like what are you trying to say? It's very funny, the overall scene. Right. But he doesn't yeah. run, which is a good, you know, thing about his character. You know, he's like I said that that openness for new things is what's help what's helping the whole movie along a little bit. Maybe in real life, maybe people would run if they saw a talking tree. I don't know. I wouldn't. Maybe Wizard of Oz. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I agree. If they started throwing apples at me, I would run. Interesting connection between um, Grandmother Willow and John Smith. Linda Hunt and um, Mel Gibson were in a film called The Year Living Dangerously. And um, that film was directed by Pierre Weir, who um, also um, directed um, Dead Poet Society. And it's interesting that also Sigourney Weaver's in this movie because of the fact that, um, you know, some critics have compared this film um, to um, uh, Avatar. And, you know, um, Sigourney Weaver played Dr. Grace Augustine um, in Avatar. You know, Avatar, you know, it was originally, Disney was almost at one point going to produce the film because Fox didn't want to because they felt that, you know, James Cameron was known for, A, having, you know, um, going over budget and the fact that, you know, he sometimes kind of, you know, doesn't always follow deadlines. Fox kind of said, you know, in spite of, you know, those issues that James Cameron has had in the past with Titanic, you know, are more than willing to kind of help him make Avatar. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe James Cameron did see Pocahontas. I don't know. I mean, you know, no, it's you, funny. Oh, um, I'm sure he did. I'm, it's, it's, so you have to, I don't know what they, you guys are younger than, like you and Brianna are younger than the yeah. rest of us. But when I was in school, we learned this story, right? And Cameron's, you know, older than me. Hey, boss, somebody's older than me. Thank goodness. All right. Uh, and, um, but, but we learned about this in school, and I'm sure he did too. I, I, I don't know if he did or didn't see the movie, but... I learned about, like, nature and respecting the environment. Me grew up in that time, you know, in the 70s with the whole, you know, pro-green, you know, respect other cultures kind of thing. It... it, it there are similarities in the stories more because there's nothing um, – this is a very classic tale kind of thing. Because, again, like we said, this is not historically accurate. Uh, there's – since 
avatars in the future, we could say the same thing. It's just interesting um, that Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, mentioned that one of the reasons he wanted Pokemon to be made was that, you know, he was hoping that this would kind of give him sort of the Best Picture nomination since Being the Beast, which, you know, was already the first animated film to get a Best Picture nomination, didn't win. He thought like Pokemon would somehow be the saving grace um, for Disney. And I guess I can kind of see that, you know, in a way, like, you know, because they were trying to be different, you know, with, you know, the drama and the non-talking animals and the fact that, you know, it does... I think, in my opinion, it does a great job with dealing with, you know, the themes of, you know, race and prejudice and, you know, nature and all that stuff. And yet that never got a Best Picture nomination, even though it did get recognized by the Academy, you know, in different categories. And yet James Cameron could have the audacity to take a story like Pocahontas and get a Best Picture nomination. Granted, of course, Avatar, unlike Pocahontas, made a billion dollars at the box office and had revolutionary effects. Yes, but was a terrible story by comparison. Sorry. Even though it's a terrible story, it's interesting that it's like, thank okay, God. Yeah, I, there, there are like five... Okay, so there are like five key points between both movies that are the same, and everything else is completely different. And like you said, Avatar is a very beautiful movie, but it's not a... But the story is terrible because they wrote around the special effects that they were going to show. But back in Pocahontas, of course, um, what we have is, like you said, Grandmother Willow interacting with John Smith and... Um, they're they're sort of talking about um, you know what what can they do how can they get past all of this and it's not until later when uh, Thomas and Kokuum and Pocahontas and John Smith get thrown together because Nakoma tells Kokuum that Pocahontas snuck off uh, Ratcliffe watches John Smith sneak off and sends Thomas after him they both kind of come together and he accidentally shoots Kokuum. Uh, because Pocahontas and John Smith are kissing, and Kokoum tries to attack and kill John Smith, and uh, Thomas shoots him and kills him, thus ruining my idea for the sequel. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> but that, it's at that point that's that's kind of the spark that ignites the fire, right? Because it's been building and building and building, and now at this point, Kokoum is dead. Thomas has shot him. They tried to kill John Smith. They have captured John Smith uh, because other other Indians come and, and take him away. And Thomas runs back and reports to uh, the the English that he's been captured, and that's when the drum beats start, and you know the war is going to begin the next morning. It's just interesting seeing you know just John Smith kind of you know being you know him w- w- willing to be captured by the Indians just kind of shows like really how altruistic is he is. Even um, Thomas said when he ran to back to the camp, he says you know he would do the same you know you know for us. So I just thought that's kind of interesting that. You know, John Smith is just that kind of... And also the fact that it's not just that, but even in the end when... Which I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but, um, you know, he is willing to also, you know, you know, sort of take a bullet from, you know, Ratcliffe so that way, you know, Chief Powhatan um, can live. And, yeah. you know, just a little detail, but I always thought it was kind of interesting when, when John Smith says, you know, let's go talk to your father, and then they stop to kiss. So I'm just thinking, like, I guess after they kiss, they're going to then, you know, talk to, um, you know... Well, historically, um, when he was captured historically, first of all, and uh, when he was, uh, it was basically according to his account, Smith's own accounting from his own writings, he basically had a nice big, long talk with Poetan, yeah. and they had a big feast as well at this point in time. So I don't know if it was like really a capture, but Smith describes it as being captured when it might have just been Poetan trying to negotiate with him, that, that whole thing is unclear. Like, you know, again, this cultural perception thing might have existed, in, you know, in reality to some degree. Um, he also, what's interesting is in, in his early writings what, for his first trip to the, to the uh, America, he didn't um, ever mention Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. 
despite that he mentions Poetan and what went on between the Indians and the Virginia and the Virginians of Jamestown, etc. I never mentioned Pocahontas. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, you know, it was not easy to watch because it was very dramatic and you had the music and, you know, again, you know, you're dealing with violence and, you know, that in itself can be very scary for a little kid like myself to handle. But now that I've seen it and I'm kind of, you know, a little more grown up, you know, I actually, I actually say it's one of the best sort of animated scenes. You know, I just love like, you know, with the music and just like the, I mean, especially the red, the, the change in the colors, you know, you notice that like it goes from being sort of a soft blue, which of course, you know, blue is, you know, represents kind of peace and there's something romantic about, you know, having the blue, which we kind of notice a bit even with the waterfall, you know, and that being blue. Incidentally, of course, the water is blue itself. Um, and then it gets like red and, you know, you kind of see sort of the jaggedness and, you know, again, you can kind of, you, you still see, you know, Pocahontas' character, which is someone who is kind of peaceful. Like, she doesn't like to kind of cause fights or cause conflicts, you know. You know, she tries to, her best to kind of end conflicts or try to sort of make sure that, you know, people just don't kill each other. Right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, I noticed that the camera does a close-up of, you know, Pocahontas' necklace, and I'm just curious if maybe there's some symbolism or hidden meaning behind, you know, the camera, you know, doing oh. a close-up of a broken necklace. Yeah, so here's what's going on there. Uh, that's their battleship Potemkin moment. Uh-huh. You can look this up. It's the that's the because it's done in slow motion where the where the necklace breaks apart. It's the equivalent of the carriage going down the stairs. Hmm. Which is something that's been mirrored in hundreds of films at this point. Yeah. She's, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't really understand. I mean, I've never seen Battleship Potemkin, so maybe you know. It's, it, it's a very old, famous movie, but. There's a famous yeah. scene where a mother, the, the, the city is under attack, and the mother is at the top of the stairs with her baby carriage, and she, the explosion rocks her and rocks the carriage out of her hand, and the carriage is slowly in slow motion bounces down each staircase. Mm-hmm. Right, this is, this, is the, this is the equivalent of that. It's, it's anytime there's a stop motion thing where something breaks apart or falls down a staircase is very done, overdone as well, I should say. Not done, but oh. overdone. Uh, that's what's going on here. I guess. I mean, I remember in the com- doc- in the audio commentary, I think it was my Gabriel's <coughs> broken necklace represents sort of Pocahontas' world sort of, you know, um, coming apart. But then again, it also represents her of her mother's spirit, so I don't know how this can play with, you know, the climax of the movie. Or at least sort of the what leads up to the climax of the film. Well, it, this is this is the, the dark moment, right, of the whole story. I mean, this is the this is the, the everybody has to hit bottom before things work out okay. And that's what that sort of symbolizes, which is what Todd's talking about. Because right after this is when, you know, Smith's been captured, everyone's going to war, and it's when she goes in to visit him uh, Mm -hmm. to look at him and try to say, you know, I I wish I'd never met you. This is where they they actually cut out a song here, uh, the If I Never Knew You. And I think the the extra scenes on the Blu-ray and a few other things. Yep. It's not in the first disc, though. I mean, it ends in the Blu-ray. You know, the, the first disc, if you watch the movie, at least from the DVD, yeah. You know, that doesn't, it's just, it just, it just doesn't theatrical release the film. Right. right. Well, actually, it, the DVD, you, the DVD that was released, you can actually watch it both ways. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I was saying they cut something out that I think would have made it better. This, mm-hmm. to me, is that song, when I watched it, I'm like, that's what was missing from the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that cements their relationship in a way that I don't feel like they really did with the rest of the movie. I don't know why they cut it out. I mean, it, it, it's a very good song, very powerful, and it really, you know, like I said, it, it 
melds the two of them together in, in a great well, way. Was, um, they had done two separate previews, one for the little kids, one for the teens and adults. Um, obviously, you know, when you have kids and love scenes, they don't mix together. You know, kids, you know, were squirming. They were really uncomfortable. And the teens and the adults, you know, seem to be more comfortable um, with Event Ever New, even though personally I feel like I'm more like the kids. I just think that it does really slow things down, and it just kind of feels like, you know, it just kind of it is a bit kind of, um, you know, boring a bit. Um, you know, and I guess so Disney decided to, you know, kind of go with the reaction of the kids and cut the film out, even though, and, and, and to make matters kind of worse, Alan Mank was actually the first person to kind of, you know, say, you know what, I think this is, this is not really working out the way it should. Yeah. Well, I think Alan Menken's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone knows I've made more films than him. <laughs> yeah, you have. He said, you know, you think I would be the last person to say that. And to get even more yeah. ironic, during, you know, at the end of preview, sometimes they might ask you questions about the movie, you know, and like, write, like, what's your favorite song? What's your least favorite? And almost everybody was either If I Never Knew You or Cause of the Wind. After that, of course, is the next morning. She goes to see uh, Grandmother Willow to, to figure out, you know, what's going on and how, how is she going to fix this and what can she possibly do. And it's at this point that we bring back the dream that she's talked about at the beginning of the movie uh, of the spinning arrow. And what it is is Miko had stolen uh, John Smith's compass earlier and he brings it back to her and it says that what happens is the the compass starts spinning and points the way to where the battleground is. And that kind of reveals like, yes, your destiny is to be involved in this. And she knows what she has to do. She runs through. And this is the moment that we all know about from history of Pocahontas, or at least a legend of history uh, of where she throws herself in front of John Smith so that he does not get his head bashed in uh, by Poetan. And that is, you know, kind of the climactic moment of the movie in that, you know, that keeps the two tribes, the English and the Poetan, from going to war. And even though Ratcliffe steps in and he shoots, he hits John Smith because John Smith jumps in front of Poetan. And then the English, you know, rise up against him and put him in chains. Right. And and that that kind of resolves the whole thing, right? At that point forward, then they, they all agree to put their differences aside and try to start understanding each other. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I would like to point out that this is really Captain Jack Sparrow's compass. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't, can't. I have no other explanation for how it works. So that's what I'm declaring. Same compass. That works for me. <laughs> I already edited the Wikipedia pages. Well, remember too, like the the whole leaves flying around thing that leads you to truth. I mean, the leaves fly around her when she gets the compass, like and they fly around the uh, poeton. When she jumps in front of John Smith, I mean, the leaves fly around your head, and you know the truth. Yeah, yeah. And right. I also think too, like with um, you know, like with the other scene, um, somehow cause I guess people to kind of understand other languages, like you know, because I think you know, had the leaves not appeared, and yet you know, Chief Powell would be speaking, you would kind of wonder how would the settlers know what the heck he is saying if you know, as you said, Todd, before they're you know, the, when the Native Americans speak English, they're really speaking um, Algonquin, but it's just you know, sort of like how. I, I, I'm not sure they did uh, understand each other. I think they understood the, nat- the symbolism of him lowering his weapon after uh-huh. having raised it up. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. I, that's, that's honestly, I don't, I don't think there was them understanding each other's language. Mm-hmm. You know, they were pointing weapons at each other. They understand that. He raised his weapon up to kill Smith. They understand that. He put his weapon down and did not kill Smith. They understand that. That's what I think happened there. 
I, I, I think that works. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just can't believe, like, when I was watching that scene, like, with Ratcliffe, and he just gets to the point where he, you know, kind of is sort of in denial of the fact that they just don't want to fight, and he just thinks it's all some kind of weird, elaborate, you know, trick to, you know, somehow, like, they, they're not really surrendering that, they really are just fighting, you know, and then once he does shoot Smith, he, instead of, you know, he tries to blame Smith, saying, oh, you know, I meant to shop Houghton, but it's Smith's fault, you know, he kind of ruined it. Well, people yeah. like that are never going to accept the blame. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's right. Stu is to blame. You know, and <laughs> I say that again with the scenes in the tent. You know, I just, I'm sorry if I kind of go a little out of sequence, but um, you know, I just thought the tent was it was a nice scene. You know, very poignant, especially you know, the way that the animation is done. I mean, there's a lot of you know the subtlety. You know, the faces. You know, it's still a Disney movie, but I just feel like it's it's not afraid to kind of go the extra mile and being a little more dull and more passionate, especially like when you see, you know. Pocahontas caress his face and be like, you know, I can't leave you. Or, you know, one of the things <laughs> that John Smith says, you know, I'd rather die tomorrow than live a hundred years knowing you, which I, I love think, that line. Uh, yeah, I can see how yeah, any woman loves that line. <laughs> yeah, true. You know, and I think, of course, you know, I guess the point of that line was it was supposed to, again, I guess this is kind of with Disney movies, it's supposed to kind of be like, oh, it's a signal for the song, or like, this is what it's about. But I think even without the um, song, that line alone kind of is sort of, you know, the base of, you know, what John Smith has to say. So even if, he don't, even if they don't sing it, he still kind of makes it clear, you know, if I, you know, had not known you, life just wouldn't be, you know, um, worth living. And also, with, you know, he, they probably cut the song out because, you know, it makes sense for the Indians to say, you know, be quick, and, unless the idea of quick is three minutes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so like you mentioned, Ryan, this is the um, you know the the historic moment that every this is the moment that everybody learns in high in high school or or earlier even about with the club being raised above his head and Pocahontas actually jumping in and doing this. Um, again, like in Smith's like I said in Smith's earlier writings, he didn't mention this. It was it wasn't until sixteen uh, sixteen in a letter to Queen Anne after he after the real Smith learns that Pocahontas is coming to England that he writes a letter on her behalf to allow her free passage into right. into England. That's when he mentions hit the execution and being saved and being saved in this manner. Yep. And, and did you know that Smith actually did have to go? Back originally, like I said, because he took two trips to the to the New World. Uh, the first time he did get injured, but it wasn't from a gunshot; it was from a gunpowder explosion. Hmm. Yeah, from the side. And had to, right, and had to go back. So that's what happened there in hmm. real life. Yeah, I mean, well, I, yeah, I, I think that's true. I think the scene, I think, when Jasper has to leave to go back to England, I think the issue people have with that one was the idea that because boats generally take so long to get from one place to another, I think people were wondering, you know, how can you survive, you know? You know, um, you know, gunshot wound for that long while on a boat. Like, you know, isn't there a chance that you're probably going to die en route? You know, back home. Yeah, all the time I, I found that. That's a common. Yeah, I found that unrealistic too. I mean, he did go back to England, and you know, he did get shot. But I think it was just more of that. I mean, to me, that it was a little bit more believable than say, you know, the listen to your heart sequence, because at least the former scene, you know, had. To truth to it, so at least I can buy it. But because the latter one, you know, was kind of more created, you know, in a Disney, like it was more just created sort of with, you know, it's it was fantastical. It was, you know, something that was just Disney constructed it, not like there's no evidence of that from history. It just, yeah. 
Yeah. But but that's the like you said that's the last part of the film is that they take um they take John Smith back to England because they've got to heal him after the gunshot wound and Pocahontas and the, the Native Americans come and bring them a a bounty to take with them and she finally kisses him goodbye and as they sail off in the sunset she sort of chases them around the cliffs and that's the last part of the movie is we see her sort of watching them sail away. That's just epic, you know, and, I, and also, even though I didn't cry, like, maybe maybe you or, you or Brianna did, but, you know, I just think it's just beautiful, like, when John Smith, you know, does that gesture that Pocahontas taught him, you know, when he comes to saying goodbye. Rachel, I cry yes. from everything. You should know this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I do. Every single thing. I, no, I did. I cried a little bit at this film. I mean, not full on, like I would in <laughs> Lady and the Tramp or something, but, you know. A little bit. I remember crying when I first saw it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was I, a manly I cry, in though. in Fantasmic. <laughs> I don't um, know why. The scene yeah. in Fantasmic makes me cry. I, I cry all throughout Fantasmic, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that made you cry. I'll just say, you know, um, American Tale, which ironically is directed by a former Disney animator, Don Bluth. That's probably the one that definitely makes me cry. But I'm back to Pocahontas. If somehow this didn't get clear, I just thought that, you know, it had one of the best sort of Disney kisses in a movie. I, I, I feel a little weird saying that, but, you know, I thought that it was definitely one of the most passionate Disney kisses I think we've seen. Yeah. Nothing weird about that. Okay. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And um, I also, it also kind of, again, you know, when I was talking about Hunter Notre Dame and how this way was kind of similar to it, I mean, Ironically, these two films were released within a year. They both have this, you know, they deal with the subject of racism and prejudice, you know, a, a dark-skinned girl falling in love with, you know, a guy who is white and blonde. And it's also interesting that, like in Hunter Notre Dame, Phoebus gets injured by the villain of the piece and, and you know, gets a passionate kiss from his girlfriend. And so and it's the same thing that we see, like, in Pocahontas. I thought it was an interesting parallel. Right. Well, that yeah. is uh, that's Pocahontas. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? You know what we really didn't get into though was uh, I mean we talked about the songs, but I you know this is the first movie that uh, Mencken and Schwartz worked together in. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yes. Yeah, and uh, and that's because uh, Mencken had been the protege to Howard Ashman for many many films before that, and then it was a breakaway where he became you know partnered rather than just you know working under someone else. So it was a good breakaway moment for him. All right. So, uh, ratings, shall we? I guess I'll go first. Um, I, I, I'm kind of a little on the fence, you know, um, you know, um, the lowest I'd probably give it was a three, but the highest I'd probably give is a four, but just to kind of be safe, I'd probably give it like a three and a half. Um, I thought Roger Ebert's review, which he gave three stars out of four was pretty good. I thought that it kind of reflected a lot of how I felt about the movie. So I probably would give it that, you know, I understand that, you know, the, the thing about the language barrier, you know, it makes sense that, you know, there's a reason why they have it. But to me, it just kind of felt a little bit contrived and unbelievable. I feel like, you know, if you want a movie that does a better job with dealing with, you know, character instantaneously learning another language, I would say Splash kind of does a better, more believable, you know, job. And, you know, I know that people even complain of this movie being a little dull, and I can kind of see how it, you know, would be, and also the fact that it is serious and the historical inaccuracies. I mean, I mean, yes, they do bring the subject of genocide up with that, with that one lyric, destroy the evil race until it's not traced, but it's almost like what's kind of, I think, misleading is the fact that, yes, the biting did stop in the movie, but 
we do know that in history, the Indians did eventually get killed. So, you know, in terms of historical, you know, inaccuracy, I do have a bit of that issue because the fact that kids are watching this and kids can be impressionable. But there also are a lot of good things about it, too. The animation, the songs, the way that things are, you know, established. So you're going to go with a three and a half? Yeah. All right. Cheryl, what do you think? I'll, I'll go with that three and a half. I think there's a lot of Disney movies that that you, that, like, I've, I had seen this before, um, long ago, and like, and I, and since then, I've seen Squanto, I've oh. seen Brother Bear, I've seen Brother Bear 2, and I think there's a lot of seeing all the movies to, to get the knowledge of trying to get the history, uh, I mean, not, not versus the correct history, but to get a history of how how Disney thinks of this, mm-hmm. and then seeing this again makes makes it more palatable. I'll say. Um, right. I, I agree, Rachel. It's you know we're not talking you know accuracy here. Mm-hmm. I think we're talking Disney accuracy, which I mean, and just even admitted that it was supposed to be. They dealt with more the fable and the folklore and definition of, of you know a fable is combining historical facts with fantasy and I can buy that I think he was very honest about that and I think that you know it's okay for them to kind of you know make their own version of the story you know I mean there are a lot of other movies that are historic and accurate or do you know fabricate you know American history so you know I'm not saying that this makes me like the movie any less but I do kind of take this with a grain of salt but on the other hand we're not talking like Nicolas Cage does 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 you know, has to go find the true history of the Native Americans either. We're not talking like that that you know type of thing. Where had that you know had this been like a national treasure sort of thing, I would expect more accuracies, or at least Nicholas Cage telling me it's accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think with accuracy and Disney is the fact that. Disney is so powerful. Most of us can identify with this. Most people know the story of Pocahontas, particularly from the Disney version. And I think when you kind of identify, you know, anything from a Disney movie more than, you know, other films or books that, you know, have adapted the story of Pocahontas, I think that's when you kind of get into um, trouble. I think that's what worries people, especially, again, with kids. I mean, I told this on Facebook about, you know, when you have younger kids, their brains are not fully developed until they reach, you know, 24 so, you know, they become more vulnerable to, you know, whatever's kind of given out them. Now, of course, if your parents and you teach them right from wrong, sure, that definitely helps. But I'm saying, let's say if they didn't have that, you know, someone telling them the difference between right from wrong. We're adults. We can watch a movie and, you know, be able to discern historical accuracy, you know, and historically inaccuracies. But maybe kids don't necessarily have that kind of skill. Not to say every kid doesn't, but the majority. <coughs> All right, so we've got two, three and a half so far. All right, Bree, what would you think? Um, I actually really enjoy this film. Um, I, I mean, honestly, like, it wouldn't be one of the first films I would think of if I wanted to just, if I was, you know, it was a lazy day and I felt like sitting down to watch a, a film. But it is one that I enjoy watching maybe once every few years. Um, I don't know. I think the animation is beautiful. I think more so because of that. They did, um, I mean, they spent like five years working on Pocahontas' character alone, uh, which is why she's known as one of the most beautiful and realistic animated characters in Disney history. Um, But 
the characters are awesome. I mean, we didn't get to talk about which ones are our favorites, but I love Miko, Grandmother Willow, and Thomas. Thomas was such an underrated character, uh, voiced by Christian Bale. Um, I thought his performance was excellent. But um, I don't know. I, I just think it's a beautiful film. I'm actually going to go with a four on this one. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Todd, what'd you think? So, um, I'm going to confess a little here. Um, I had not actually ever sat through this entire movie before. I'd seen parts of it. I'd read quite a bit of stuff about it because it's a very talked about Disney movie. But right. I'd, never, I'd never bothered to see it end-to-end before. Um, after having seen it, I'm like, okay, I don't really feel like I needed to have seen it. I honestly, it's not that I hate the movie. It's just like, I don't, I don't, like I'm not really particularly negative about it, and I'm not really particularly positive about it. It's just kind of a there for me, mm-hmm. right? I, I I I get what it's trying to do, but I feel that um, they could have done better with their eighty odd minutes that they that the movie is to tell the same story. But I completely agree. The songs are good. I like, like I said, just around the riverbend. I like. Um, and I agree with what Brianna says is that it is a very pretty movie to watch. Like, I could watch this movie without the sound on and be happy. <laughs> right. Okay? Because it's, good, because it's very nice to look at. And the, and the colors are very different than any other Disney movie. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's a tru- that's, there's a truth to that because I think they went with very natural, earthy tones as a, mm-hmm. as a result of the, con- you know, the content that was being stuffed into the movie. Right. Um, but for me, I, I just I, – I kind of feel it's not good enough to be a three, but it's not bad enough to be a two and a half. So I'm going to say 2.75. Hmm. Ryan? All right. So I will go with a three. Um, I actually liked this better when I, when I initially saw it, um, when it first came out. Um, and big, if you remember, Disney used to do these like big stage productions before new, new releases back when – uh, well, okay, Bree and Rachel probably don't remember this. Todd and Cheryl might, but you know they would take it, you know, the weekend that it opened to major towns, and they do this now out in Hollywood. But so I went to see it here in the Fox, and they do a little like musical number before they show the movie, and that's where I saw it here in Atlanta, and oh, really? really, really liked it. Then uh, the more I watch it, the more I feel like it's a movie that has a whole lot of potential, but they just didn't bring it all together necessarily the way that I would have preferred. Like I mentioned, like removing the, if I never knew you song. Um, I think the Miko and Percy interactions, I know what they were trying to do and I don't think they quite did. Yeah. It got a little silly. Yeah. Actually more than a little silly. It got very silly. Uh, for for a movie that has such a serious tone, it's Mm -hmm. hard to, it's hard to recognize that it's kind of like hunchback with the gargoyles, right? They're so silly. But they manage in that movie to sort of downplay them to the point where it's yeah. even that is part of the, the serious mm-hmm. tone because you don't know if it's in Quasimodo's mind or not. So, yeah, I would go with a three. So, yeah. there we go. I, I thought it, before you close out, I thought it's interesting to just mention the premiere thing because uh, when it premiered in Central Park, that's like known as being the largest premiere of any movie ever. Yeah. Wow. And it's yeah. interesting, um, I was reading an interview of Irene Bedard, which you can find somewhere on the computer, and she talked about um, her experience with Central Park here, and I thought it was interesting hearing that, you know, and this is typical of Disney animation, obviously, you don't get to work with other actors, you know, and I guess one of the questions she gets commonly asked is, you know, did you get to meet your, you know, husband co-star, 
you know, Mel Gibson. And she said that, um, no, she didn't. I mean, as much as she wanted to, but at the time he was working on, you know, you might guess it, um, Braveheart, which I thought was kind of interesting. So now like when I watch Braveheart, it's like, oh, so that's kind of why I didn't, you know, um, attend the premiere. That was oh, an interesting yeah. little fact there. That cool. would keep him busy. <laughs> yes, and um, to kind of go on with favorite characters, I do agree with the, I do like the two leads. I think they're very interesting and um, kind of surprising the fact that, you know, they're both very similar, you know, they both want adventure, they both, you know, are sort of nonconformist. I mean, they're kind of romantic, not just in terms of being affectionate, but also romantic in the literary sense of the term, which is, you know, being in touch with nature and, um, you know, kind of following their heart and, you know, going against, um, you know, authority. And I also like Wiggins. I like some of the three of his lines, which were, I, I, I made it myself when he pulls the arrow out of his head, as if you think, he, like, the arrow got shot through his head. And then the line when Ratcliffe asks, um, you know, like, why did the, you know, Indians attack them? And, you know, just when you think it's a rhetorical question, Wiggins brusquely says, you know, because we, you know, invade their land and chop down their trees and dug up their earth. Yeah, yeah, that's that would a, do it. He's, he's a funny character. So that's going to do it for our look at Pocahontas. If you enjoyed the film or you disagree with any of our ratings, or if you agree, just go on over to DisneyFilmProject.com and leave a note there and let us know what you thought. And make sure that you follow us on Twitter when the episode comes out, at DizFilmProject, and you can let us know what you think and give us suggestions or ideas. Or go over to the Facebook page and you can vote in our listener choice and, and do all kinds of fun stuff there. And, and you, who knows, you might end up on the show, right, Rachel? Yeah. See? So go over to our Facebook page, Disney Film Project on Facebook. But until next time, we will see you later, folks. And he came so highly recommended. Pain? What pain? I've been in worse pain than this. Can't think of any right now, but... They're different from us, which means they can't be trusted. This is a path I choose, Father. What will yours be? From this day forward, if there is to be more killing, it will not start with me.